the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Even when Jesus says you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer, that's not a blank check. God knows as our Father there's some things that we ask that He just simply won't give us for our own good. You know how this works with your own kids. There's a lot of stuff your kids want. I want this, I want this, I want that. And for their own good, you sometimes say no. Well, how was it then that Jesus said if you ask for anything, you're going to get it? Again, you have to balance Scripture. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he's praying to the Father. In today's message, Pastor Gary will share some clarifying information about a commonly misused Bible verse. The verse says that whatever a believer would ask in the name of God would be given to them. Sounds pretty great, right? Does it truly mean anything? Not really. If you ask for a brand new sports car in the name of God, you probably won't get one. The verse needs to be considered under the idea of God's fatherhood. Like a good father, he knows what we need and what we don't need. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. And so one of the first things here that Jesus does, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this scene about Jesus overturning the uh, money, uh, the, the tables of the money changers and uh, driving out the, um, those who were uh, buying and selling here. Uh, all four Gospels record it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end of Jesus' ministry. This is the last week of his public ministry. The Gospel of John puts it at the beginning of of his public ministry at the first of the three Passovers. Now, I once read an article in Newsweek or Time, I don't remember which, uh, that talked about, see, this is an example of, you know, the contradiction in the Bible because John says it happened at the beginning of his ministry and the other three say it happened at the end of his ministry. And people look at that kind of thing and think, yeah, see, that's a contradiction of the Bible and that's why I don't like the Bible and it's not true and it's not reliable. Hey, news bulletin. These are Gospels so that we get the whole story. Why do you think that God knew that we needed to hear it four different times in four different ways and four different angles? 
because he wanted the sum total of the story to be reflected in his broadest sense. The answer is, Jesus did this twice. He did it at the beginning of his ministry, as what John's gospel tells us, and he did it at the end of his ministry, that's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us. It's not a contradiction. It folds together to complement each other. So you take all four Gospels together, it tells us that Jesus did this twice. In John's Gospel, in chapter 2, it tells us that when he did it at the beginning of his public ministry, that Jesus braided a whip. I love that, because I envision Jesus just, you know, he goes into there, and he doesn't just fly off the handle, okay? He doesn't just lose it. He actually stands there, gets three long pieces of leather, the Bible says, and he braids it. And I just had this picture of Jesus with three long pieces of leather, and he gets somebody else on the other end. Can you just hold that? Just hold it real tight. Just real, hold it. Just real. What are we going to do? I'm just going to braid this. We're just going to braid this for a little while. I'm just going to braid this. How are you doing? And he takes time to be braiding this, and then after it's over, he's like Indiana Jones. Yo, you know, he's just snapping people and spanking them and driving them out. Now, look. And I only mention that because, again, it's not like Jesus is flying off the handle. He's very calm and cool and collected about this. He takes time to braid a whip, okay? That's how thoughtful he is about this. He's thinking this thing through. But this is, of course, what we call righteous indignation. Does Jesus get angry? Yeah, Jesus got angry. I thought all anger was sin. Not all anger is sin. Are you kidding me? If somebody harmed a family member of yours and you didn't get angry, you ought to go see a doctor. There needs to be somebody to help you. Because there should be things that cause us to be stirred up in the heart with anger. There's a good kind of anger. There's obviously bad anger and there's out-of-control anger. This is not out-of-control anger. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And this is righteous indignation. And by the way, this is not a statement against any kind of merchandising. You know, don't read this and go, should we be buying coffee at church? You know, Holy Grounds Cafe. It should be holy smokes. God's going to smoke us. I can't believe you're selling coffee and you, and you actually sell CDs and stuff here. Look, it's not about any kind of exchange here. The issue is the heart issue. These people are corrupt and greedy. This buying and selling was, I want you to picture like a bazaar. A bazaar. In fact, Josephus says that this was called the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest. And this was his way of lining his pockets. He was greedy for money, and he took advantage of God's people. And it was extortion. In fact, I heard one source that said that Annas would pocket every year, in our modern terms of dollars, modern terms, Annas would pocket $3 million worth of profit off of the people every year. Now, how would he do that? Because here's what's happening. When you come from, in the case of Jesus and his disciples, you come from Galilee to Jerusalem. I mean, it's going to take you a good week to walk that. And uh, you are going to come to offer sacrifice. It's Passover. Now, normally there would be a few hundred thousand people who would live in Jerusalem at this particular time. But at Passover it would swell to between 2 and 3 million people, the historian Josephus tells us. And, and so therefore, you, I want you to imagine millions of people now gathered in Jerusalem. And if all those people had to be dragging their lamb from wherever they lived, it would be burdensome. In addition, it had to be a perfect lamb. It couldn't have any spot or blemish or defect. 
And if you start dragging lamb chops from like 60 miles away, chances are you're going to have a wolf that might, you know, take a chunk out of its ear or, or want to chop for itself. You can have a hungry little wolf, one in a lamb chop, and then if the and then if a wolf gets your little lamb, now you got to go all the, what all the way back home to get another sacrifice. So here's what they would do: you wouldn't bring any any lamb with you if you're traveling a far distance. You'd show up in Jerusalem, and they'd have some for sale. You could buy your own lamb. But now here's what they would often do: oh, you don't have a lamb? Oh, that's too bad. You need a sacrifice, don't you? We have a lamb for you. Can I interest you in your lamb? Can I just, you can test drive it if you'd like. It's wonderful. Kick the tires. It's a great little lamb. You'll have a wonderful time with it, but it's going to cost you because you are going to pay for a service of getting a lamb here in Jerusalem. And they would often charge 10 times the price of a lamb. That's kind of like price gouging, okay? You know how it is when you like buy a Coke and it's like normally a dollar? You go to a ball game and, and it's like eight bucks for a Coke. Eight bucks for a Coke. Can you have any water? That'll be 10 bucks. I mean, it's just as crazy. Okay, and this is the kind of thing. So now you get down to Jerusalem, and your, your lamb is going to cost you 10 times. In addition, you had to pay a temple tax. You had to pay a tax to, to go to the upkeep of the temple. And uh, the Jews said to the Roman Empire, hey... Uh, we, we need to be able to mint our own coins because, and in fact, this is in, in Exodus chapter 30. Moses uh, was instructed by the Lord that each man should pay a half a shekel a year that would go towards the upkeep of, at that time, the tabernacle and uh, at future times here, the temple. And so everybody had to pay a half a shekel per person. And when they came to Jerusalem, though, they didn't have the proper coins. Oh, but you don't have the proper coins. Well, we'll sell you a coin. It's going to cost you. And so between selling coins and price gouging and charging exorbitant prices to, to buy a coin, it wasn't an even exchange rate. It was usually 25% more. And then you're going to buy a land that's going to cost you 10 times as much. All this profit is, is price gouging. It's extortion. It's greed. It's using the temple of God to rip God's people off. So that's the heart issue here that is happening. And the high priest Annas was behind it, this whole bazaar of Annas. And he's just lining his pockets with all the money of the people. And he's charging these exorbitant interest rates and, and price gouging just to be able to profit himself. And Jesus comes along and he sees this. That's what's behind it. It's greed. It's taking advantage of people. And it, it is costing them much more than it should. And as, and as Jesus sees all of this, he realizes that the, and he sees and recognizes that the temple of God has been turned into just this crazy flea market and where people are just getting ripped off and other people are getting rich at the expense of these worshipers. And so Jesus then starts overturning the tables and the benches. He says, it is written there in verse 13, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. That's a combination of two Old Testament passages. Isaiah 56, 7, when he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. And then Jeremiah seven eleven when he says, but you are making it a den of robbers. And now it says in verse 14 that the blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Notice just in these first couple of verses here, what Jesus tells us should really be happening in the temple of the Lord. Prayer. That should be happening. People getting healed. That should be happening. 
Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Worship should be happening in the temple of the Lord. These are the things that we see. Prayer, people getting healed, little children worshiping. Blessed is he, Hosanna to the son of David. They're shouting in the temple area. They were indignant. Listen, the, the religious leaders, chief priests, teachers of the law, they're indignant because they don't believe that Jesus is Messiah. So they don't believe that he should be hailed son of David. And Jesus says in verse 16, Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? That's kind of giving it back to them because they're the chief priests and teachers of the law. They're supposed to be well-versed in their own scriptures. And Jesus says, don't you read your scriptures? Because if you really read the scriptures, you should know why they're doing this. And he quotes out of Psalm 8, verse 2, From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Now, Bethany means house of dates. Bethphage means house of figs. So these were places, these were villages that produced figs and dates. And he comes to Bethany here, outside of the city, where he's going to spend the night. Again, when millions of people are converging on Jerusalem, there's not hotels for all these people. So people are going to be sleeping in the Mount of Olives. They're going to be sleeping over in Bethany. They're going to be sleeping in, in, you know, maybe you have a little room to rent. You have a couch to rent. And so, you know, you will open up your own home to people who have traveled from a great distance. And the whole city now has people just sleeping anywhere and everywhere you can find a spot And Jesus is going to go back here to Bethany. Bethany is going to be a popular place for Jesus because he has friends who lived in Bethany. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus was the one that he raises from the dead. And they live here in Bethany. And so uh, no doubt he's probably going to go stay with them. Well, he makes his way to Bethany to spend the night during this week of Passover. And then it says, uh, keep reading verse 18, early in the morning. So next morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he, wet, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Now this is the only time that Jesus uses his powers to inflict injury. And he afflicts this tree because as he's leaving Bethany, going back to Jerusalem, and, and Bethany was probably just under two miles, so just, you know, not a, not a very long walk, but a little under two miles, and he's hungry. It's in the morning. He's going back to Jerusalem for the next day of the Passover feast, and he sees this fig tree, and it's got some big green leaves, but it has no figs on it, and, and he curses it, and it withers. Now, It says in verse 20, when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now they asked, how was this done? They didn't ask, why was this done? And we need to answer that question. Why was this done? Well, mark in the margin of your Bible that the fig tree is symbolic of the nation of Israel. And I'll just give you, I won't read the verses, but Jeremiah 8, 13, Jeremiah 24, 1 to 10, Hosea 9, 10, and Joel 1, 7. I'll read those again. Jeremiah 8, 13, Jeremiah 24, 1 to 10, 
Hosea 9, verse 10, and Joel 1, verse 7, all refer to Israel like a fig tree. In fact, in Hosea 9, 10, one of the verses I just mentioned, it says this, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your fathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. What Jesus was doing by afflicting this tree and causing it to wither was he was making a statement of judgment that the nation of Israel looked beautiful. It was green. It had big leaves. It looked wonderful, but it wasn't fruitful. And it wasn't fruitful because they did not, by and large, accept that Jesus was Messiah. So this is a statement of his judgment against the nation that has rejected him. The Bible says he came among his own, and his own received him not. Now, God's not done with Israel. It's not like this continual judgment is upon them. God doesn't want any of us to perish, but all to come to repentance. And he still has great plans for Israel. But the Bible says in Romans that there is a window of time. It says that all Israel will believe, but there's this window of time right now for the Gentiles. That's you and me predominantly. We do have some Jews who are believers in our congregation, but, but this is the opportunity for Gentiles to come into faith. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. That's what Paul writes in Romans. And so there's this window where God is opening it up to Gentiles, first to the Jew, then the Gentile. This is our window of opportunity, and God's not finished, and there will be a great evangelistic response among the Jewish people that is still to come. But right now, Jesus is, okay, there's judgment that is coming upon this nation, and he curses the tree. Now, because they asked, how did you do this? Then Jesus talks about faith. He talks about if you have faith and don't doubt, you can do Uh, what was done to this fig tree. But again, balance Scripture with Scripture. Even when Jesus says, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer, that's not a blank check. God knows as our Father, there's some things that we ask that He just simply won't give us for our own good. You know how this works with your own kids. There's a lot of stuff your kids want. I want this, I want this, I want that. And for their own good, you sometimes say no. Well, how was it then that Jesus said, if you ask for anything, you're going to get it? Again, you have to balance Scripture. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he's praying to the Father. He defers to the will of God. That's not a weak thing to do. I hear sometimes Christians say, don't pray according to the will of God. You just name it, claim it, and ask God what you want, and he's supposed to deliver if you have enough faith. No, it's okay to pray according to the will of God. In fact, Jesus models that. And the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verses um, 14 and 15, This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And remember also James tells us in James chapter 4, two reasons we don't always get what we want. He says, first of all, in James 4, he says, you have not because you ask not. Sometimes we don't get from God because we simply don't ask. But then there's another reason we don't get from God. He goes on to say, and he says, And when you ask, uh, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And so even even James tells us, you're not going to get everything, because some of the things you ask are with wrong motives. And when you ask God with wrong motives, he's not going to give you everything that you want. So you have to always... Use the Bible as a commentary on the Bible. And when Jesus says, ask and receive and believe, he doesn't doesn't mean necessarily everything and anything. 
because the rest of the Bible frames the context of his words. But nevertheless, he does encourage us to have faith, not faith in the result we want, but faith in God. It is faith in the Lord and trusting him for his good will. Well, verse 23. Now, here in verse 23 is when he encounters these folks who are spiritually blind. And it says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. You know, so, here, so they get all together in like a little huddle. And they're like, okay, Jesus is, and this is, this is brilliant, what Jesus is doing. Okay? They're trying to question his authority. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's questioning their competence to judge the issue. So he says, well, let me just ask you a question about John's baptism. What do you think? Was it from God or from men? So they get in a little huddle, and they're trying to decide, what's the best answer here? Because if we say it's from God, then we're going to be held accountable because we didn't really believe that John was from God. And if we say it was from men, the people are going to be angry with us because they believe he was from God, and then they're going to attack us, and it's not going to go well with us. So then they came up with this brilliant answer. They answered to Jesus in verse 27, we don't know. We're just going to pass on this, Jesus. We don't know. And Jesus answered, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Isn't that brilliant? And Jesus is like, okay, you questioning whether I have the authority? I question whether you have the authority to ask me if I have the authority. And when the guys end up going, yeah, we don't know. Proof in the pudding. That's why I'm not going to answer your question. And he moves on. Now, from this place... Notice in your Bibles, it says the parable of two sons, the parable of the tenants follows that. And then even into chapter 22, first part of chapter 22, the parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus is going to now teach them three parables, which obviously in five minutes we're not going to be able to get through. Um, But here's what he's going to do. He's now going to challenge these very people, the chief priests and teachers of the law, who do not believe in his authority who did not accept him as Messiah, and he's going to use parables to challenge them. Now, again, if, if you were here earlier and we talked about parables, the Greek word uh, for parable is parabalo, and it comes from two words, para, meaning alongside, and balo, to throw. A parable was uh, an illustration thrown alongside truth to illustrate that spiritual truth. And often when Jesus was trying to teach something, he'd throw alongside a story to help expose the, the real deep meaning of spiritual truth, especially to those who are spiritually blind. And these next three parables that we'll get to next week all have to do with challenging these religious leaders. The first one is the parable of two sons, and then the parable of the tenants, and then finally the parable of the wedding banquet. After the first two parables, if you just... We'll come back to this but next week. But if you just jump ahead to the end of chapter 21, look at verse 45. After the first two, in verse 45 it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. 
And they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So after the first two parables, they, their eyes are open. They go, I, I think he's talking about us. That's exactly right. He was exposing them, and then he's going to give them one more, the parable of the wedding banquet. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. This unique perspective on Jesus' life gives you a glimpse into the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the true King above all kings. Jesus' greatest act while on earth was to give His life to pay for the sins of every person, and that includes you. If you're ready to step away from your mistakes and failures and embrace a new life, Jesus is ready for you. His grace is enough. You can come to Him no matter what your past looks like. Would you like someone to pray with you? Or do you have some more questions? We'd love to talk to you. Please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. You're invited to join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online. And you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. There, you can also hear additional messages from the series in Matthew or others that Pastor Gary has shared. Again, that website is cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know